Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. This Saturday, the Missouri History Museum opens two new exhibits, Pulitzer Prize photographs and, in focus, St. Louis Post-Dispatch photographs. The first is a traveling exhibit from the museum in Washington, D.C., which displays the most comprehensive collection of Pulitzer-winning photos ever assembled. The second, St. Louis Post-Dispatch photographs, provides a companion exhibit that shows off the work of our local photojournalists. Jody Sowell, Director of Exhibitions and Research for the Missouri Historical Society, and Robert Cohen, a staff photographer for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, recently joined me in studio to talk about what these new shows entail. Jody, many of the Pulitzer-winning photos in the museum's collection are immediately recognizable. The viewer may not realize they began on the pages of newspapers, but they will know these photos. Can you describe a few of the images that are going to be in the show? Sure. So that's one thing I love about the show is that there are some of those Im images that are immediately recognizable. You saw them in your high school history textbooks. They have been produced time and time again. And then there are photos that you likely have never seen and don't know the story of. So some of the most famous, uh, probably think of uh, raising the flag at Iwo Jima, uh, Babe Ruth's last uh, time he said goodbye to Yankee Stadium, um, Jack Ruby shooting Lee Harvey Oswald. Not only are these iconic photos, but they have fascinating stories behind them. Um, so the the man who shot the Iwo Jima flag, his name was Joe Rosenthal. He worked for the AP. He knew that the Marines were going to put a flag on the highest point of the island. And so he went up and then was disappointed to find out that they had already raised the flag. And so he had missed what he thought would be a great shot. Um, then it turns out the Marines wanted to put a bigger flag up on the highest point of the island to make sure everyone saw that uh, that America was sort of taking over. And he got there at just the right moment to see that iconic photo, um, a photo that is so amazing and so sort of well designed as far as where the people are, that angle of the flag, that until his death, people said that that photo must have been staged. And that sort of haunted him for his whole life that people would think that he had staged this photo, but he was at the right moment at the right time. And then on the flip side, you have a photo like the Jack Ruby photo that could not possibly have been staged and almost broke the news for people that, that this had happened. And that's another one that was a photographer who thought he had missed the moment. So Robert Jackson from the Dallas Times-Herald uh, was actually in the Kennedy motorcade, saw a rifle coming out of the book depository, but he was changing his film at the time and so did not get that shot. Um, a couple days later, he gets the shot that everyone remembers of Jack Ruby uh, shooting Lee Harvey Oswald. There's some really great images in this show. Um, one of the more obscure um, images that, that we're going to be talking about today, the first Pulitzer Prize for photography, um, it goes all the way back to 1942. Is that going to be part of the show? That is. And so that shows uh, some strike breakers at uh, the um, River Rouge plant in Detroit. Um, and it was union guys sort of beating up on this uh, strike breaker. Um, the photographer got this one shot, was his only shot that he got because he had seen that a lot of the union workers were actually beating up photographers and taking their cameras because they didn't want these images out. Photojournalism can be a very dangerous position, profession. I, under um, I understand there's actually a St. Louis there connection is. to that. So but. Milton Brooks, the uh, first photographer to ever win a Pulitzer Prize, was actually born in St. Louis. So.
that's that's a good little bit of trivia for our listeners. Uh, the, the Missouri History Museum is not the first museum to show off the museum's photos, but it is the first to mount a companion show to accompany the traveling exhibit. Um, can you tell me a bit about how these two shows came about? Yeah, absolutely. So um, at the Missouri History Museum, we are committed to telling local history and telling the history of St. Louis. And while all of these shots, the Iwo Jima shot, the Jack Ruby shot, um, one thing that we love about that is we know that St. Louisans were paying attention to those images. That's why this show makes sense for us. But we also wanted to make it a local show. And uh, there's no better place to turn than the Post-Dispatch when you want to talk about local photojournalism. And so we went to their offices and asked if they would like to be a part. And they said, absolutely. It was and a very so, quick, yes. That's right. That's right. And so this show, uh, there are 80 images in the Pulitzer show. There are more than 75 images images in a show we're calling In Focus, uh, images from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Um, and so it's pretty much half and half. It's just as much a Post-Dispatch show as it is a Pulitzer Prize photograph show. Okay. Now, Robert, uh, you're a longtime photographer at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. When did you first learn that there was interest in doing a, a museum show that would involve your work? Yeah, we uh, we found out about uh, we've been traveling. We've been following the uh, museum's uh, traveling show for quite a while, and and uh, soon discovered uh, online that it, that it was coming to St. Louis, and and so uh, started hearing talk about an interest in in including some of the St. Louis Post Dispatch history, which is quite deep. And did you play any role in deciding which images might be chosen? I, I didn't personally. I know um, our uh, our editor Gary Harrelson, and worked he worked with the uh, museum staff, and I believe, you know, he he gave them what what we had, and mm -hmm. and they came down and looked at other things, and together it was curated. Okay. Now, um, Robert, I know the Post uh, has won 19 Pulitzer Prizes in its 141 years of publication. I don't know if you knew that. I, but I, I, do, I, I that. do know that. I do know um, that. Two of them have been for photography. The first was in 1989, and that was for Spot News Photography. Um, Jody, can you tell us a little bit about that image? Sure. That's an image that a lot of people in St. Louis will remember. Um, that is a photo of a fireman pulling out a young girl uh, from a burning building. And it got a lot of attention, um, was shown all over the country. Uh, the young girl does end up dying a couple of days later. It's a hard photo to look at. Many of the photos that win Pulitzer Prizes are difficult photos to look at. Um, the photographer was actually an amateur photographer. Ron Oshwanger um, was, uh, worked with the fire department and oftentimes took fire photographs. Um, he became very close to the family after the firefighter, after uh, this photo was published. And he said that he was um, happy that the, the legacy of this uh, young girl was that more people thought about things like smoke detectors. And mm -hmm. so that's another thing you will see in some of these great photos is some are tough to look at, but they often have important results as a result of being published. Yeah, well, that actually is a, a great segue to the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is the second Pulitzer that the photojournalism staff won, and that was for your work covering Ferguson. Robert, I know you were intimately involved with that. Um, 
one of the interesting factoids I learned while reading up on this show that the first person at the Post-Dispatch to learn about Michael Brown's shooting was actually, it was not a reporter. It was a photographer. It was your colleague, David Carson. Right, right. So David uh, had a, uh, a Twitter follower uh, who basically sent him a note that, that said, or sent him a tweet saying, um, this has happened and you guys need to be out here. Uh, and did he listen to that? I feel like I, I don't always listen to my Twitter followers. Some of them are crazy. <laughs> but he knew maybe right away. Yeah, I think David at least knew enough to engage to try to find out more about it. David wasn't working. I wasn't working. Um, it was the weekend. Yeah, it was a Saturday. And uh, our staff is very small on, on the weekends. And um, at the time, the, the newspaper just did not know about it. And uh, he had called in, and I think at that point – right before he called in that we did get word and we had sent out uh, one of our photographers and a reporter. But we were getting a late start. Um, uh, the, the one image that we do not have that we certainly wish we had, even though it's very difficult to look at, mm-hmm. was Michael Brown's body in the street. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time we got there, um, the scene was still uh, there but we could not get through the police lines to a point to actually be able to see because it was pretty deep in the you know deep into the apartment building off of Canchill Drive and and the streets were shut down and we couldn't get there. And, so, and when you say we, you were there with David at that point or are you you mean David was No, David okay. was uh, with uh, Hui Mock who okay. was who was our photographer working that day and um, you know they they got as far as they could get. Yeah. And and so that, that's, you know, that's the one image, even though it's yeah. very difficult to look at. Uh, it's one thing we did not have. But, uh, but know, so we, David was there and was able to capture the crowd scene and, and sort of as things were beginning to build that day. Right. David and we, uh, they, they captured uh, Leslie McSpadden reacting. Um, Michael Brown's mother. Yeah. Um, you know, flower petals being left in the street. Uh, and then, and then, just the outpouring of people that started coming to the neighborhood. I mean, social media played such a massive role in this story. Mm-hmm. Um, it grew as quickly as it grew. And when did you end up um, first going to the scene in Ferguson? I was actually not there until the next day. Okay. Um, I think. Uh, I think at this point we didn't realize how deep the story was going to get. Mm -hmm. And um, the next morning, I had a couple other assignments that I shot, and uh, I ended up getting there in the afternoon. And And what was the mood like when you got there? It was, uh, people were still very angry. The first place I went was was down to the police station. And people were still in the streets, streets were still shut down, and people were were venting and very angry still. And, and I remember as, as the day went on, eventually, you know, we were trying to make a decision, do we, are things settling down enough for the night? Are we going to kind of pack things in and come back in the morning or, or not? And, and we ended up, most of us went home, and, uh, and David and I kept in close contact through the night, mm-hmm. and we were both kind of watching things, at least on Twitter, and uh, I remember we talked uh, as soon as the looting started at the quick trip. And that was that evening then? That was, yeah, that was, that would have been Sunday evening. Um, and uh, David and I both headed out. Okay. And so you knew you had to go yeah, back. Yeah, we went, we went back and... And I know David captured, I don't know if it happened that night, but David captured perhaps the most iconic um, photo uh, 
of the looting that took place. Yeah, David. Just at very close range. David actually went inside the Quick Trip as as. Uh, Is as, that advised? Would your editor say, "Don't go into that Quick Trip"? <laughs> but who listens I, to editors? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> he he made a judgment call. I was uh, I was also there, but I was across the street. I was kind of watching. He had there was a gentleman out in front, in front of the building, and uh, he basically said. David told this man that I'm going in, would you kind of watch my back? And the man said, sure. And David went in and was not in for long, (laughs) just a couple minutes, and then came back out. Um, I think he said in the past that he probably would not have repeated that. Okay. (laughs) um, But he made some amazing images in there, and it certainly told the story as as this story really unfolded. And did he, when he came out, did he indicate he knew he got the shot, or at that point where you guys were just in the moment, you weren't even discussing that? Yeah, we were just kind of doing our own thing. We were kind of staying within I sh- you know, eyesight of each other just to kind of make sure everybody was okay. And um, and I remember after you know after after that happened, um, he went one direction, I went another direction. We were both sending pictures from you know our laptops or our cameras at that point, and and. Okay. And that continued for weeks. Weeks. <laughs> uh, we have to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue our conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. And welcome back. I'm here with Robert Cohen, a photographer at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and Jody Sowell, Director of Exhibitions and Research for the Missouri Historical Society, to discuss the two new photography exhibits opening at the museum this Saturday. Um, Robert was just talking to us about his work in Ferguson and going back to that. um, Robert, one of your images from that time depicts protester Edward Crawford holding a bag of red-hot riplets in one hand and throwing back a canister of tear gas with another. It might be the single most famous photo from the Ferguson protests. What was going through your mind when you got that shot? It's funny. Um, as, as the, it's a little bit of a long story, but as the evening went on, and this was every evening out there, um, because if, if it was going to be a violent night, it was normally going to be a violent night late. Mm-hmm. And so we, uh, we, changed our edition we changed our deadlines a little bit we eliminated an edition and so we just had two deadlines to work with and th- and this one was coming up very quickly it was a night that uh, it would have been the third night and it at this point it looked like we were going to end the evening with a peaceful protest and and everybody was going home and uh, without getting into too deep uh, eventually uh, things changed mm-hmm. and locations changed and the mood changed and um, the police moved in to clear clear the street up on, on Chambers Road and um, Edward came out of nowhere. Uh, a, a, a tear gas uh, canister was fired and out of nowhere I just see somebody pick it up and I'm just I'm just trying to get get the image in focus more than anything else and I also realized how late it is at night and so it was a very quick moment he threw back the tear gas and uh, I never saw him again Hmm. I didn't know he got arrested afterwards I didn't know he ran away all I knew is I had this picture it's something 
we haven't seen yet as we've been covering the protests. And as I'm looking at my watch, it's something that needs to get to the paper right now because the narrative has changed for the evening. Mm-hmm. We, we're going from peaceful ending to more violence. And and so I rushed over to my car, and as we did in the middle of the summer, a lot of us were working on the trunks of our car with our laptop, just trying to get a little bit of air, and uh, sent the image to the paper, missed deadline, did not, did not, it did not make the print edition the oh, next no. day. Oh, no, I didn't realize that. It did not. And... Um, how, do you know how much you missed your deadline by? <laughs> I, I believe it was about 15 minutes. Oh, wow. So, so close. It was close. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously we got it in there later. Yeah. But uh, it was, you know, it was, an impor- it was important information to have back to the office because there was no, there was nobody else nearby. Another photographer and I were working the scene, Chris Lee, mm-hmm. and... Um, and there weren't very many journalists there either because, like I said, the, the protests moved from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. And it was about a mile away from the main protest area. And so not that many reporters knew what happened. And so um, that's kind of how it transpired. And that photo ended up really taking on a life of its own. Jody, I, I know that often happens with these iconic images. Can you speak a little bit about what happened to, to Robert's image there and, and maybe, you know, some of these others in your exhibit? Absolutely. I mean, I think you have said that you have seen that. You've seen people with tattoos of that image. Uh, you've seen that on the sides of buildings. I mean, that that is, uh, you know, Eric Crawford later died um and a lot of people have talked about that his legacy lives on through this image um and that's what a lot of photographers talking about and a lot of people who uh, sort of allow photojournalists into their lives there was a great um photo essay and i can't remember what year it was from um the concord paper um photographer's first name is Preston, and I'm forgetting her last name. Ganaway. uh, Yeah. Preston Ganaway. Mm -hmm. Um, But she chronicled um, the last few months and sort of beyond of a woman who was dying of cancer and how her family was um, reacting to it, both uh, as she was going through it and then after she passed. Um, I mean, they basically invited a photographer into some of the most intimate moments Mm -hmm. of their life. but I think they did that because they knew that other people were living through this and it was a way for people to relate. I mean, that's the great thing about photojournalism is it can connect people. It can connect people. It can make them realize that things are happening around the globe that they did not know were happening. It can make them understand the real dangers and tensions of something like Ferguson. There's something about that still image um, that carries so much power that I'm not sure that video does in the same way. Um, and I don't think it's been diminished even in the age where we're all carrying a camera in our phone uh, with us. Uh, you see that with the Ferguson images um, and you see that certainly with more historic images. What I always say about photojournalists is that they are capturing the first draft of history. So mm-hmm. they really are capturing those moments in ways that we as historians won't come back to for for many years, but we will use the work of Robert Cohen and the other journalists at the Post-Dispatch to help us tell that story for decades to come. Robert, can you talk a little bit about the danger that that Jody just talked about in a situation like Ferguson in particular? um, Was this danger from um, really angry protesters? Was this danger from the cops? Was what made your job difficult there? Yeah, yeah, it it was uh, challenging. Um, (laughs) You know, I have I've not grown up in you know in my career I've I've been in a a fair amount of uh, 
ceasefire war zone situations, but I'd never been in an active, something that was this active and could become this violent. I mean, because a lot of the streets of of Ferguson during the day were very peaceful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, I I always, you know, tell people there were, I saw a couple groups of protesters. I saw peaceful protesters that were there to get their point across and they were holding signs and, and yes, they would get in the policeman's face and make their, uh, opinions known. And then there were the opportunists. And the opportunists were out there to cause trouble in the evening. Mm-hmm. The people with the signs were not the people that were inside the quick trip. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, we, we, um, we took precautions best we could. We had a uh, very, very small, what we call a, like a war closet down at the office that had ballistic vests and helmets. Um, and some gas masks, and those were mainly used by some of the photographers that went to Afghanistan and Iraq and were embedded with uh, American servicemen. And uh, so when this happened, um, all of a sudden we bought a very large amount of ballistic vests. We had all new equipment come in, and and within days we we, we had equipment. Um, You know, sometimes I I thought it was a little bit ridiculous wearing it out there, (laughs) and... um, in, until the evening got later and you started hearing gunfire from unknown places. Mm-hmm. And that, that I think, was the largest danger. Um, Just that it would be almost random gunfire that you'd be caught in the middle of. Exactly, exactly. I, re, I do remember, oft, often we were just hearing it. We were very, very rarely seeing it. But I do remember one night I was sending pictures sitting in, just kind of leaning against a, a strip mall uh, building and I was sending pictures off the laptop and I heard shots again and these sounded a little bit closer and I looked up and I actually saw the muzzle flashes right in the middle of the street. It's like, oh. <laughs> That'll get your attention. It's time to go. And yeah. And so it was, it was, it was tricky. Yeah. yeah. Jody, tell me about how that connects to um, some of the other photos that are going to be part of the show at the well, Missouri History Museum. So many of the photos are, uh, photographers are putting themselves in danger. And there's another post-dispatch, Robert, I'll have to, if you remember the photographer, I'm not sure we knew on this one, but it was, um, it was a march down Lendl during the Vietnam War. Um, and it was union members who were marching, but they came across a guy who had a sign that said, veterans against the war, something like that. And they um, were angry, and so they start going after the guy, and a woman comes onto her front driveway with a hose to try to get the protesters away from the guy. The photographer who shot that uh, was hit in the head with a bottle during the, during the sort of skirmish between these two. I mean, that sounds relatively, um, that's not the worst, of course, that you're going to get. There's an image in the Pulitzer show of the inside of a sniper's nest, and it has it's an amazing photograph because it's dark, but you see all the light through these gun holes. The photographer's putting himself in that place to get that shot. Um, that's what great photojournalists do, is they put themselves where they need to be to get the shot that they feel like is going to help tell the story. Oftentimes that means putting themselves in really dangerous situations. Yeah, David Carson was, you know, he, he was assaulted in one, during the first couple nights of Ferguson. He, he he had uh, a group of people saw him with a camera, and they, they came after him. And uh, a pastor pretty much got him out of the situation. But but you know he he got 
And he went back after that. He wasn't, I mean, he was never tempted to pull himself out of the story and just have the rest of you guys cover it. That's, no, that's not David. No, yeah. Dave, 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 you know, we're there to work. And we're there to tell the story best we can. Yeah. Now, photojournalists also capture slices of everyday life and, sure. and joyous moments, too. So uh, you will see David Carson's... Uh, Ferguson images, but also one of my favorite images is of a kid running through a sprinkler at a, a sort of heat center when it was a really hot St. Louis summer. And it's just a beautiful photo. There's a rainbow in the background. Um, it's a great image. Yeah. In the Pulitzer show, you will see a portfolio of a photographer who wanted to capture what it was like to be 21 and a boy or a man in America. And so the image that you'll see on the wall is a 21-year-old with a snake around his neck. Um, you'll see an amazing image of two kids playing in front of Cabrini Green, the housing complex in Chicago, with just pure joy on their faces. So as much as photojournalists do put themselves on the front lines and have to chronicle some of the toughest moments in history, and you'll definitely see that, they're also there to remind you what uh, what everyday life is like and capture that emotion and capture that sort of dignity in, in average people. So that's another thing. You'll see lots of stars. You'll see lots of well-known people. You certainly see that in the post-dispatch section with the sports section where you see lots of well-known uh, baseball players and hockey players. But you also see a high school soccer game. Um, and... Uh, Pulitzer section, you see Coretta Scott King, and you see these people that you know, but you also see people who you don't know anything about, but they managed to capture the the their life in some way that was poignant and made the Pulitzer judges think, yeah, that's one of the best pictures of the year. Jody, in terms of your curation of the local part of the show, um, how much were you striving to sort of balance the dark with the light, or were you just literally looking for the best photos? Well, we worked with the, the Post-Dispatch took uh, the biggest lead on that, I feel, feel like. What we told them is that we, we really want a sort of cross-section of St. Louis history. So we want to, to see photos that represent different decades. We want to see photos that represent different parts of St. Louis life. Um, I am glad in the St. Louis show, I feel like they do... The Pulitzer show can be heavy at some big moments in history, and those moments aren't always uh, fun, and they're hard to look at sometimes. I heard one reporter say, or reviewer of this show say, that the photos are both hard to look at and hard to look away from. Mm -hmm. um, but one thing that I love about the Post-Dispatch part of the show is it shows even more of that sort of lived life, of everyday life in St. Louis. Um, because they've been chronicling this this city for so long. Robert, um, are, are any of your photos a part of that, the lighter side? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, you know, like Jody says, like the 90% of my day is, is slice-of-life type images. I mean, we're, people are allowing us into their homes, and, and we're um, – and, and we're just showing their daily lives. And, and the more open they are to us, the better job we do. But, yeah, there's, there's – uh, there's plenty of, of, of lighter images in, in, of mine and my colleagues, yeah. Robert, um, how long have you been with the, the Post-Dispatch now? I, I am here 20 years this year. Okay. I've been at this. Congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> Still here. Uh, I've been at this about 33 years. And is this the first time your work has been in a museum? No. Okay. Tell no. me, what, what, when did it happen before this? Some of the Ferguson images actually were in um, – we're in a California museum. It was it was uh, 
tied to a Black History Month, and uh, these were they made massive prints. Okay, I mean, they were like five foot wide prints. They were they were sh- striking. Um, I've also had work. I, I used to work at the uh, Commercial Appeal newspaper in Memphis before I came to St. Louis. We had a a show of emerging photographers at the Brooks uh, Museum of Art in Memphis, and so I had some work in there also. So you're a seasoned museum veteran. Is this the only time that your photos have been in your favorite history museum? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, good. <laughs> good. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> Robert Cohen and Jody Sowell, thank you for joining us. That was Robert Cohen of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and Jody Sowell of the Missouri Historical Society. Both exhibits, Pulitzer Prize photographs, and In Focus, St. Louis Post-Dispatch photographs are free and set to open August 3rd and continue through January 20th. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.